0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Mark 1, 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark... He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, everybody, let's do it. Let's go ahead and jump in today. We're going to cover our one verse. <laughs> All right, so we are in uh, week eight or nine in Mark's gospel. So we're blazing through. (laughs) All right. So we're in, I think it's either eight or nine. So um, I hope this... Slow, methodical, careful study of Mark's gospel is strengthening you and encouraging you and challenging you. I'll briefly summarize where we've been and then jump into our one verse for the day. So, the gospel of Mark opens with the announcement, the good news of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And then Mark tells us that Jesus has come on the scene fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy that there would be one that would prepare the way of the Lord, that would be John the baptizer. Jesus follows john the baptist john the baptist preaches repent of your sin people are leaving the city going out into the countryside being baptized jesus follows them out into the wilderness jesus is also baptized not because he's repenting of sin but because he's identifying with the people of god He comes up out of the water. The father speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. He heads out into the desert. He resists the temptation of the devil for 40 days. He then begins to preach and teach with authority. He calls his first four disciples. Then he goes into a synagogue, teaches with authority, drives out a demon, goes to Simon Peter's mother's, Simon's mother-in-law's house, He heals her of a fever. He then heals uh, the rest of the town that night at sundown. He has been busy, to say the least. So today we're talking about Jesus praying. As I begin, I want to read these sentences to you from one of my heroes, uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson. He wrote a book in 1987 called Working the Angles. The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. Here's what he says about prayer. Prayer is not something we think up to get God's attention or enlist his favor. Prayer is answering speech. The first word is God's word. Prayer is a human word and is never the first word, never the primary word, never the initiating and shaping word, simply because we are never first, never primary. Did you catch that? Prayer is answering speech. If you ever find yourself in a moment of authentically praying, it's because God started the conversation, not you. That's what prayer is, it's responding. So that's where we pick up today with today's sermon entitled, Earthworm. All right, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So I grew up in a small farm town called Woodstock, Georgia, and we had a big wooded backyard with a creek that ran through it, and I would play in the creek, Jumping back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And on the other side of the creek, there was a hill that went way up. And I'd climb to the top of that hill where Eubanks Road butted up against our property. And that's where there was a stop sign where people would throw out their beer cans and Coke bottles into our backyard. And so I would climb up there to the top of the hill in our woods. And I would collect those beer cans and Coke bottles and take them back down to the creek where I'd line them up and I would get my BB gun and I would ping them all afternoon. Yes, that is a very Georgia boy thing to do and I'm very proud of it. And so one of my favorite things to do though down by that creek bed was to take the time to turn over the big stones and see what was underneath. There would be big centipedes, lanky earthworms, and little round roly-polies all kind of squirming about like a whole ecosystem, a whole world was going on there in the Georgia clay that I wouldn't know about had I not taken the time to stop and flip the big stones over. Why tell you that? Here's why I'm Because on Tuesdays, I go into my study and I close my door and I begin to pull off my shelves lexicons and dictionaries and commentaries and journal articles, and my responsibility in that moment is not to sit down at my desk as Pastor Alex or Dr. Early. My responsibility is to show up there like a 10-year-old in 1990 in the Georgia heat and kneel down in the creek bed of God's word and start turning things over, looking to see what's moving around. And so the things that I start seeing under there they take the shape of syntax, <laughs> grammar, parsing verbs, history, archaeology, anthropology, sociology, psychology, and certainly sound doctrine. All those things are under the stones. And so my responsibility is to show up with curiosity and creativity. And carefully look into God's word in order to stay in a place of awe and wonder, and then gasp all week long, and then bring it back to you and say, Check out this earthworm. <laughs> That's how it feels week by week on Tuesdays. And the reason why I have to stay like a 10-year-old in my study rather than an academic or a very serious cranky pastor is because the moment where I become very serious and very grown up and very adult and too academic, my faith dries up like a raisin. There's a reason why Jesus said, if you want to go into the kingdom of heaven, the only way in is through becoming a child. The kingdom of heaven is not a seminary classroom. It's a preschool. <laughs> if you want in, you've got to have an imagination. You've got to open up. And so that's what we're trying to do when we read slowly and creatively and take our time and stillness and pause. Thank you for the gift today, Lisa, of giving us a moment of silence. These moments that we take in silence, you might think, couldn't we be getting more done? And the answer is no. No. God gets more done in 30 seconds of silence than you'll get in a lifetime of theological education. There's something about the gift of silence and doing the long, slow, tedious work of spiritual formation that the church has primarily neglected in so many ways over the last hundred years in North America that it explains why the church is in the way that it is. We've got to get good at listening. Not winning arguments. listening so when Jesus prays there's something interesting about this Um, based on what we just summarized of the first chapter of Mark's gospel what he's been up to so far it doesn't look like he would need to pause and pray He's driving out demons. He's already stared down the devil. He teaches with authority. And he's emptied the hospitals just by talking to people. So based on how you and I tend to pray, which is when convenience or tragedy strikes, Jesus wouldn't qualify. You know what I'm trying to say here? Like, like we tend, if our money can't fix our problem, and if my health doesn't fix my problem immediately, then I punt to God and go... Now I need to talk to God. Which isn't Christianity at all. That's like a pseudo-Gnostic karma religion. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is the invitation to abide with God through the presence of the Holy Spirit day in and day out. And you are no more with God when you're receiving the sacraments on a Sunday morning than when you're in your work truck on a Thursday afternoon. Okay? Okay. Are you guys with me today? Like okay all right you know so Jesus wouldn't qualify if he followed our prescription for prayer we're to follow his so it doesn't look like he needs to go pray I mean he's beat the devil and has already proven that he's the son of God even God had spoken from heaven and told everybody that's my son doesn't look like he needs to carve out time for prayer And yet, Jesus pushed himself and traded sleep for prayer. It says that they brought to him in the preceding passage at sundown, they empty the hospitals and bring all the demon-possessed and all the sick to Jesus at night, which means he's laboring well into the the night. And then he decides to get up early while it's still dark to go pray. And Mark records that Jesus prays three times in his gospel here, here, then again in chapter 6 right before he walks on the water after he feeds the 5,000 and then the last time is in the garden of Gethsemane each time Jesus prays he's alone in the dark Jesus departs to pray because he better than anyone understands the purpose and the power of prayer And so Mark doesn't include the details of what Jesus was praying about. But we do know, according to the rest of the New Testament, some key passages teach us how Jesus prayed. He prayed fervently. Listen to this verse from Hebrews chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, that is, that's the way the writer would say, Jesus's daily life, how he lived his day by day. In the days of his flesh. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Okay, so when Jesus offers up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, the supplications mean submissive requests. And with loud cries and tears, when Jesus prays, he prays often. He prays attentively, and he prays passionately. That Jesus doesn't use prayer as a time to, well, time to just pass the time. Like in our our worship services, like on Sunday, you will never hear us say, all right, I'm going to pray, and while I'm praying, and you guys all close your eyes, that's when we invite Dan on the stage. Have you ever noticed that, to like start leading and worship again? That's because prayer, that... That blast, that's blasphemy. It's a, it's a using prayer as a substitute. Like, all right, all you guys close your eyes and don't watch Dan come up here and pick up a guitar. It's like, oh, and then you stop praying and there's Dan with a guitar. It's like, why did we use prayer for that? Can't you just invite Dan to pick up a guitar? Like, yeah, and we do because we're not going to just use prayer as a kind of a transitional thing. How irreverent before God I mean, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he purchased the very opportunity for us to say things to God, to God. And they actually go somewhere. There's an address and a recipient. And so we don't take that lightly. If we're going to say something to God, then let's say something to God. And if it's not time to pray, that's okay too. That's okay too. So Jesus was heard out of his reverence and his loud, passionate praying. Why is the writer of Hebrews, why mark that when Jesus prays loudly? Because Jesus had entered into the human experience completely. And had so identified with us that when he engages God, he engages fully alive. A human being knowing that God is on the other end of the line. So he prays with all of his heart. He puts his mind into this. He puts his whole self there. The way we say it around our churches, he was present. And he was heard out of his reverence or piety, which means this wasn't cold or impersonal, like mouthing religious words with no heart. It means he had a kind of reverence, a kind of holy submission to God. And we also know that Jesus made requests of the Father. And he not only made requests, he also received his instructions in prayer. In John chapter 5, this is what we read. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So when Jesus spends time in prayer, he's he's receiving his instructions on what to do next. And so, like I said a moment ago, we don't have recorded here in Mark 1 what Jesus prayed. But there is, if you want one window, and we only get one really good window into his prayer life. Go read John chapter 17. It's called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's there that if you spend some time, you actually start to get an idea of the kind of relationship that Jesus had with the Father. Here's one verse. It says this. When Jesus is praying, it says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they, his disciples, they're still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So maybe just listen to how Jesus talked to his own father. He says, holy father. Referring to God as holy speaks of Jesus' honor and reverence. Speaking of his father speaks of Jesus' trust and his intimacy with God. That might sound strange, but you can actually have A close, real, intimate relationship with God. So maybe this week, one thing maybe you could even do yourself is to just work on those two words yourself. Holy Father. On um, Wednesday morning this week, I uh, realized I had really lost a, <laughs> a kind of a sense of reverence for God as holy. Not that I didn't know it up here. It's just I, had, I didn't feel it in my spirit in quite some time. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Um, and so I, I, I got out my, my <laughs> I had left my Bible at my study. And the only Bible in my house was my Torah. <laughs> I got my, this Torah bound when I was, I think, 24 years old. And I realized that I had never just completely immersed myself just in the law of God in any kind of real, deep, meaningful way. So I took my, my regular Bible with the rest of the scriptures and the New Testament, and I put it in our attic. <laughs> and I got a Torah bound, and I... I'm not kidding you. Jana and I had only been married a year. And she's like, oh my gosh, you are nuts, dude. But like, I was like, I need to know the law of God. So I read it every day. And I got Hebrew commentaries and blah, blah, blah. And I just immersed myself in the law every single day for a full year. And by the time that year was up and I came up for a gasp and got to open up Matthew chapter one, verse one, the gospel's like, (gasps) oh, We're not gonna stone people for picking up sticks on Saturday anymore. But it taught me some reverence about what Jesus had actually come to do and fulfill. And so on Wednesday morning, I was reading, listen to this verse from Deuteronomy chapter five. This is after, you remember when the mountain's on fire and lightning is going everywhere and it's dark and God is speaking and the people can hear God. Listen to what they say. The Lord has just shown us his majestic presence. And we've heard his voice out of the fire. And we've seen this day that that man may live though God has spoken to him. Man can live. Man can hear God's voice and it not incinerate him. They were blown away. We heard God. We heard God. And we lived to talk about it. Guys, I was sitting in our lounge on Wednesday morning reading that and I mean, I hit my knees like six o'clock in the morning like, holy father, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So maybe take a moment this week and just carve out some space to remember just how holy our God is. This week I'm gonna read First John and I'm gonna read about my loving father. <laughs> but I needed a moment of sobering up to the holiness of God. So here's a couple of takeaways. When we see Jesus retreating to pray, he's modeling for us what should become regular for us as disciples. First, it was very early in the morning. Now, I'm not telling you you have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, even if the sun's already up. But there is something to noticing that Jesus willingly sacrificed and inconvenienced himself in order to cultivate a healthy walk with God. He did. John writes later in 1 John chapter 2, listen to this. It says, Whoever says I know him but doesn't keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, it doesn't mean you have to be up at three or four o'clock in the morning praying, but it does give us this model that Jesus carved out time. It was inconvenient to his own self in order to cultivate a relationship with God. In fact, if you're going to have an authentic walk with God, it doesn't come through ease or convenience, certainly with laziness. It does cost us, but the rewards outweigh the cost. And maybe you're a Christian this morning, uh, and you might be kind of struggling just a moment to believe me here on this with the cost outweighing the rewards, especially if you've been a Christian, you know, for more than five years or 10 years or maybe 20 years or 30 years, and you might be going... this seems like just a thing you're supposed to say, pastor. Does it, does it really? Well, maybe just go back in time and remember. Like, don't remember when you became religious. Remember when you fell in love. Like... Do you remember before all the isms of postmodern isms or the Calvin isms or the evangelical isms of the world got a hold of how you viewed God? Do you remember? Do you remember when you like when you just we couldn't pry a Bible out of your hands because you just wanted to read it? With like no one to impress and nothing to prove? Did you ever have a time in life where brunch was never even an option on a Sunday morning because no one could, nothing could deter you from being in the presence of God and his people? Do you remember the time like when you lifted your hands in worship out of just, you just found yourself there? The way David describes it, and we were just singing from Psalm 42, listen to the verse that follows the As the Deer passage. Psalm 42, verse 4 says, My heart's breaking. I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amidst the sound of a great celebration. Do you hear that? I remember... How it used to be. I remember when I wanted to do this. And I remember when my life. Was with the people of God. And in community. As a pastor. Here in Seattle. It's kind of hard. You know. And we all have hard work to do in this world. So you know. But I can tell you. It is hard. At ground zero of deconstruction. And all the things that we hear about every day. And every week. For me, the posture I've taken in prayer for my friends that have walked away from the church and the faith altogether is not, how can I get better at articulating the doctrine of inerrancy? How can I prove the resurrection of Jesus? For me, I've been praying for my friends. I remember how it used to be. There's so much power Just in your memory, you know? So the biggest cost when it comes to, like, cultivating this intimate walk with God isn't money. And as Seattleites, money's oftentimes not the biggest problem in our city. I mean, money's a thing, for sure. But the biggest cost, at least in my observation, is time. Like when you talk about time in Seattle, you're talking about the sacred cow. (laughs) We don't like to commit to anything, ever. But it costs time to study. It costs time to pray. It costs time to listen. It costs time to cultivate a life with God. It costs time to be known in community. It costs time to sit with the truth, not just hear it, but then sit with it for a bit. It costs time to grow. And because Jesus was so very aware that there is no substitute for time with God. Or rather you could say it this way. Jesus knows that because there's no shortcut into ushering in the kingdom of God. There's no substitute for time with God. Jesus has come. It says in Mark 1 that he's come to usher in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And the only way he's going to bring the kingdom in is he's going to remain in step with his father. So there would be no phoning in or committing halfway. You wouldn't find Jesus asleep at his desk. Hmm. Jesus chose to stay in step with the father, even in the moments where it might appear to us that he could have just hit cruise control. Like you use cruise control in your car when the road is open and wide and safe. There's not a whole lot to do. (laughs) But cruise control in the spiritual life is where we end up making the biggest missteps. It happens when we've got a few wins under our belt. Have you noticed this in your own life or is it just me? Yeah. So when you hit cruise control we begin to think I'm entitled to X because I've been good in Y. And that's where we derail ourselves again and again. And so because Jesus was human in every sense that you and I are human, Jesus stayed in step and modeled for us what it would look like. Jesus said it this way, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's a hard verse. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Leon Morris, an Australian theologian, commented this. He says, Jesus points that the kingdom has no room for those who look back when they're called to go forward. They're called to go forward. Not looking back, looking unto Jesus. So, as a church family, let's move forward. Let's move forward in our faith, move forward in prayer, move forward in our own commitment, move forward in sharing the gospel, move forward in encouraging one another, move forward in our obedience, move forward in being present to God, to ourselves, and to each other. I'm now at my um, third read through The War of Art. Have any of you read that book, by the way, by Pressfield? It's absolutely incredible. Um, But in the War of Art, they tell one story about Odysseus. And the story goes that Odysseus and his crew had traveled these difficult seas and they're on their way back to Ithaca. And as they begin to sail into Ithaca, they can see a bunch of little fires on the beach. And they assume, oh, that's our families. They're, you know, they're cooking, they're staying warm, whatever, and they're they're gonna row on in. So Odysseus says, well, you guys just row. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a nap as we cruise in the last few minutes of our journey. And as they're sailing in, a few of the crew decide, let's go open that oxhide bag that Odysseus has back there. I think there's gold in there. So they go and they take his bag and they open the bag. And there wasn't gold in there. The four winds of the earth. <laughs> had been put into the bag. And so all the wind comes out, fills the sails of the ships and blows them all the way back across the sea. And they have to start the journey over again. And the moral of that old you know, Greek mythological story was very simple. Don't sleep on the last 10%. Finish the job. And so very practically, what's it going to look like how are you going to stay awake in the boat of your own life, especially in the last chapters? So practically, are you, are you like me? Are you like a morning person, like to get up as soon as you possibly can? No. No. <laughs> Maybe it's setting an alarm on your phone. Maybe it's carving out space in your lunch break. Maybe it's in the evening or just after dinner. Maybe it's just before bed. I don't know. But carving out space to be with God in that last 10%. To walk with him, to strengthen that relationship. The other thing to notice in this verse is that Jesus uh, departs to a desolate place. Which means desert or barren or empty. The idea is that Jesus removed himself from distractions. So what distracts you more than anything these days? Does anybody have an idea? This guy, this thing, like as wonderful as these things can be, we all are distracted to the nth degree with these. And so very practically, my encouragement to you as your pastor would be put it in another room and put it on airplane for days on end if you like. (laughs) But put it somewhere else. Take your Apple watch off or whatever and like physically separate yourself from the technology that disrupts and distracts reason why I don't read my Bible physically on my phone is because I'll just keep moving back and forth between other apps or text messages or whatever. Like, but take some way to get to the desolate place that carves out that says, all right, I'm going to be alone with God. I'm actually going to do something about it and actually try to be with God. So grab like a physical copy of the Bible if that helps you. Now, in conclusion, thanks for bearing with this sermon as I'm trying my best. We've been challenged to increase our discipleship, convicted about our own approach to prayer and confronted with like a challenge to to wake up and to step it up. And we've once again beheld Jesus as the perfect example to follow. But remember, Jesus as your example only will crush you. Jesus as your substitute will save you. Jesus didn't come here and say, look, if you fulfill the law, (laughs) you know, exactly like I did, you can have eternal life. Like, he doesn't do that. Jesus says in Mark 10, no, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. My life is going to be given in payment for many. And so if you keep following him, what shape did that ransom take? We read Maundy Thursday. Listen to what it says in Mark's gospel. On the last time where he prays in the dark. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The cup in the Old Testament is 100% of the time referencing the will of, uh, of the wrath of God. The cup. Abba, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. So, on Good Friday, early one morning, Jesus rose, but he did not depart to a desolate place for a time of prayer. Instead, Jesus rose and he remained in the city. He surrendered to the will of the Father, was betrayed and handed over. On Good Friday, Jesus found himself surrounded by religious people. Sadducees and Pharisees, the whole Sanhedrin. Jesus was surrounded. Even Caiaphas himself, handed back and forth between a corrupt religious system and the government itself. Jesus was surrounded by the religious and no one's praying on Yom Kippur. You ever catch this? Jesus is overwhelmed by all the religion, and yet no one's talking to God. And yet, as Jesus is pierced and put to the wood of his cross, he's the only one still praying. He prays for the forgiveness of his persecutors. He prays this prayer, this cry of dereliction, my God, my God. And then at the very last minute, Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he hangs his head and he breathes his last. Surrounded by religion, no one was speaking to God except for the Son of God. You see, all of his wealth really was in his relationships. He was so wealthy in his relationship with God, He was able to take the dying thief to heaven from his own cross. (laughs) Now that's wealthy. And that's for you. When Jesus prays, the word Father, pater, is how it's translated in Greek. But the way he would have said it 156 times in John's gospel is the word Abba. Our word for dad dad. You think, gosh, is this some kind of sloppy sentimentalism? No, this is devotion. This is a kind of bond that cannot be broken. Daddy. So when Jesus dies and rises, Paul's able to say in two other places in the New Testament, Romans 8, verse 15, and Galatians 4, verse 6, he has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That the relationship that Jesus gives to his people is not a cold transaction. It's intimacy, it's trust, it's care, it's compassion, it's kindness, it's truth it's concern that your father's attentive to you do you know him do you know he loves you do you know he's not tired of you do you know that he waits to hear your voice god loves you so much church he loves you so much